Every four years, the citizens of our country head to the polls to elect our nation's leader. Just in our generation alone, candidates have emerged with various backgrounds, ideas, and policies. But they all have one thing in common, promises. Eliminate the debt, secure our borders, boost the economy, fix education, protect Medicaid, lower taxes, cut spending, reduce government, increase jobs, restore values, and make America great again. And now we are faced with a decision between left and right, liberal and conservative, Democrat and Republican. So we attend the rallies, write the checks, hear the debates, analyze the polls, listen to the spin, watch the ads, follow the campaigns, pick a candidate, go to the polls, cast our votes, and then we wait. Well, hey, Grace Chapel, great to be with you all today across all of our campuses. We want to give a special shout out to our partner church at Christ Church in Amherst, New Hampshire. They are welcoming their new pastor there today, John Nuxel and his wife, Amy. Now, CCA has been partnering with us for a while on their Sunday services, taking our sermon teaching and designing services as well along with us. But they have now called, uh, they'll continue to do that, but they have called the uh, pastor now to give leadership to their congregation as they pursue God's vision. So welcome, John and Amy. We're glad you're here and look forward to getting to know you and partnering with you in the days to come. And while we're at it, we'll greet our Foxborough folks too as they gather for worship down there. We're glad you're with us and look forward to launching a campus down that direction uh, in the days to come. So good things happening. But today we are taking a break from our Thrive teaching series in order to think biblically about politics. This is actually a part of an ongoing series that we have been curating over the past years where from time to time we pause to address some topic or event of current interest. So over the years, we have thought biblically together about terrorism and natural disaster and sexuality and global conflict and the economy. And today, for obvious reasons, we are thinking biblically about politics. Now, our bumper video probably captured the tension, the anxiety, the bewilderment that many of us are feeling as we think about stepping into that voting booth on November 8th, just a, a week or so from now. On the one hand, we're probably glad to be putting this election season behind us. At the same time, we're a little bit afraid of what we might wake up to on November 9th as well. This is my 10th presidential election as a voter, as I figure it, and I can't remember one that's been as contentious and as disheartening as this one has been. Mental health professionals tell us that they are seeing unprecedented levels of activity in their mental health practices. People coming with anxiety and panic attacks and depression and family strife. The American Psychiatric Psychological Association tells us that 52% of Americans are experiencing high levels of stress over this election. Now, you don't have to be a mental health professional to get this. You can see the weariness, the wariness in people's eyes. You can hear the strain in their voices. I mean, how many conversations have you been part of this fall that began with the words, can you believe this election? And how many of those conversations have gone badly as different points of view began to emerge and tension and emotion began to run high? 
a psychiatrist at the psychiatrist at the Mayo Clinic says that people are wondering, how can I feel safe? Who will take care of us? One counselor advises his clients to watch 20 minutes of the news and then turn to Netflix. <laughs> now, we don't typically wade into the political arena here at Grace for reasons I'll explain along the way. But at a certain point, it became clear that we needed something better than Netflix or Saturday Night Live to help us process what's happening in this particular election. We need some guidance as to how we can think and engage biblically as Christ followers in this particular election. Now, when I announced this message a few weeks ago, I really wasn't sure what I was going to say. But I've been grateful for time to search the scriptures and to read widely and to talk with some of you and now to offer some guidelines. I want to be clear that my purpose is not to speak for Grace Chapel because our congregation is too wonderfully diverse for any one person to speak for all of us. And that's a good thing. And my purpose today isn't to tell you how to vote. I think pastors need to refrain from publicly endorsing candidates or parties. We are stridently nonpartisan here at Grace Chapel, and I'm going to try to stay that way as we make our way, way through the topic this morning. I've got my nonpartisan purple shirt on here, okay? <laughs> it's neither blue nor red, so I hope that will keep us on track. My purpose is simply to provide us with a framework for thinking biblically and engaging constructively with this particular election. So you might think of it in terms of framing a house. When you frame a house, you define the space. You uh, identify the footprint. You lay out the rooms. But it's up to the individual homeowner to decide how to occupy that space. And different homeowners will occupy the same space differently. So I'm going to throw some lumber at you this morning. Five biblical truths and a few scraps. Uh, you might think of them as two-by-fours that, when put together, can frame our thinking about these things. But chances are each of us will occupy this space very differently, and that's a good thing. Understand, as I do this, I am far more concerned with our witness and our fitness as Christ's followers than I am with the outcome of this particular election. What we do on the other side of election day is really far more important to God's purposes than what we do in the booth on election day. I believe that. So, here we go. Five biblical truths to frame our thinking about and engaging in politics. Number one, government and politics are ordained by God and worthy of our engagement. Government and politics are ordained by God and worthy of our engagement. In his letter to Christians living in the pagan city of Rome, Paul writes these words. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. For the one in authority is God's servant for, you, for your good. So Paul is telling us that government is a good idea. 
that it is part of God's plan for human flourishing. He goes on in this section to explain it's the role of government to preserve order, to promote the common good, to protect its citizens. Now, he's not saying that God approves of every ruler or every regime. He's simply saying that government exists for God's good purposes in this world. I think most of us would agree that government, even in imperfect government, is better than anarchy. But Paul doesn't stop here affirming government. He goes on to affirm politics. Skip down to verse 6. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Most of us are okay with government, but we struggle with politics. For a long time, politics was considered an ignoble profession, and it may be heading in that direction again, seems to be. I came across one urban dictionary online that proposes the etymology of the word politics. Poly meaning many, and ticks meaning blood-sucking parasites. <laughs> That's as edgy as I'm going to get this morning, okay? So I just thought we'd get it out of the way. <laughs> Truth is, I like politics. But it's not uncommon to hear people and even Christians say they want nothing to do with politics, that we ought to keep it out of the church if at all possible. But Paul doesn't allow that option. Politics is simply the activity of governing. It is the shaping of public life and policy. It is the interactivity of people with their leaders, of laws and, and institutions that that serve the common good together in a land. And so when Paul tells us to pay taxes and honor our leaders, he's telling us to, to be political, to be engaged in constructive, appropriate ways at serving the common good. He's asking us to be stewards of the freedom and the resources and the opportunities we have been given. Now, there are varying levels of engagement politically. It would seem as though the bare minimum would be to obey the laws of the land, pay your taxes, and I would dare say vote. Now, voting wasn't an option for Paul's readers in the sense that it is for us today, but it would certainly seem to me that voting is one of the ways that we can express honor and respect to our governmental leaders and our institutions. So I'm not going to tell you how to vote on November 8th. I am going to encourage you to vote on November 8th. As disenchanted as you may be with some of the candidates, as disillusioned as you might be with the process, this is a constructive, God-honoring way to participate in the governance of our nation. And it's helpful to remember as well that people laid down their lives to secure for us the freedom to vote and to govern ourselves. We honor them and we honor our country when we participate in that way. It's also important to remember, even if you're uncertain or disinterested in the, the, the presidential line at the top of the ballot, there's a whole long list of other offices and measures to be voted on, things that, 
that ought to concern us as citizens and followers of Christ. There are four of them, four measures on the ballot in Massachusetts having to do with gambling and with uh, uh, recreational uh, use of marijuana, with the treatment of farm animals, and, uh, and also charter schools. So we want to be thinking about them. We have a chance to speak to those issues. So obey, obey the law, pay taxes, vote. If you want to be more engaged politically than that, if you want to join a political party, if you want to volunteer for your candidate or party, if you want to run for office, that can be a noble and God-honoring endeavor. And that leads us to our second point, second biblical truth. Politics is ultimately about loving our neighbors. Politics is ultimately about loving our neighbors. The real root of the word politics is polis, which means city. It reminds us that we do not live alone. There are other people out there. We're part of a community. So politics requires us to think collectively, not just individually. It turns out that's exactly what Jesus asked us to do. In fact, it's what he commanded us to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we tend to think of loving our neighbor in very personal terms, like bringing a meal to the new mom across the street. Politics allows us to love our neighbor on a much broader level, on a systemic level like providing nutrition, nutri nutritional programs for, for new moms and their children all across the city or across the state. To love our neighbors as ourselves is to want our neighbors to enjoy the same freedoms and opportunities and protections that we enjoy. Paul Brink is a political science professor up at Gordon College up on the North Shore. And uh, he likes to tell his students that politics is primarily about justice and that justice is the opposite of just us. Okay, justice is the opposite of just us. The tragedy of our current political climate is that we are all retreating to our respective parties and preferences. We're hunkering down with people who think like us. We're scouring the web for blogs and people who will support our particular point of view. Instead of doing the very thing that politics requires and that Jesus demands of us, that we think about others first that we consider another person's point of view. So we all have unconscious biases. We're all predisposed to see the world uh, and to come to conclusions based on our own life experiences by the families we grew up in, the, the communities we live in, the schools that we attended. An upper-middle-class white person living in suburban Lexington experiences life in America very differently than a first-century immigrant in a crowded apartment in Chinatown. And our system needs to serve both of them. It needs to work for all of us. That's why Michael Gerson, 
It says that politics requires a necessary empathy. A necessary empathy. Now, Gerson was a speechwriter and policy advisor for the George W. Bush White House. He's now a columnist with, uh, with the Washington Post. He actually spoke here at a forum at Grace a month or two ago, and I thought this was one of his most helpful insights, a necessary empathy. Politics and the pursuit of the common good means I can't just vote for the candidate who will do right by me. I have to think about the one in the party that will do right by my neighbor as well. And that's not always an easy question to answer because we have a lot of neighbors. My neighbor includes the unborn child and the undocumented child. My neighbor includes the entrepreneur who's trying to run a profitable business and his minimum wage employee who's trying to put food on the table. So which neighbor should I be thinking about when I cast my vote? Which party or platform will best serve all the interests or the broadest reach of interests? It's not so simple, is it? And that leads us to our third biblical truth. No party or platform fully embodies the vision and values of the kingdom. No single party or platform fully embodies the vision and values of the kingdom. One day, two political factions came to Jesus. They posed a question. Actually, what they were doing was setting a trap. The Pharisees were Jewish nationalists who had no interest in Caesar or his empire. The Herodians were pragmatists who had already sold out to the Roman Empire. And so they came to Jesus to trap him. They asked the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, if Jesus had been a savvy politician, he would have dodged the question and pivoted to his talking point. <laughs> but Jesus was smarter even than that. What he does instead is to turn the question back on them and catch them in their own trap. He holds up a coin and says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. This was brilliant. Notice, first of all, that Jesus refuses to choose sides as if one party was entirely right and the other party was entirely wrong. It was much more complex than that. What he does instead is to remind them that God's agenda and authority was far greater than Caesar's. Caesar could demand a few gold coins. God could demand their very souls. So he refuses to choose size, and then he refuses to let them off the hook. He doesn't tell them how to vote, how to pay their taxes. They're going to have to make a decision about paying their taxes. They're going to have to decide, how do I best honor God and Caesar at the same time? God grants us freedom. But his agenda is far greater than any party's platform or agenda. And that's why we have to resist 
identifying the church or the gospel or evangelicalism with any particular party or platform or candidate. We have to resist that. None of them are adequate to capture the whole thing. Ron Sider is a well-known thinker in the areas of social justice and political action. Some years ago, he wrote a landmark book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. In a recent article in Christianity Today, he confesses that as a, as a thoughtful Christ follower in the evangelical tradition, he often finds himself torn between two parties. He tends to lean toward the Republican side of things on certain issues, like when it comes to, to preserving the life of the unborn or uh, the freedom of religion. But he finds himself drawn to the Democratic side of the equation when it comes to things like racial justice and caring for the marginalized. And because of that tension, he says over the years, he has voted both ways in elections. And he often splits his ticket in any given election. And he refuses to be categorized. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't appreciate it when a Christian leader tries to speak for me politically. Because it's impossible for any one person to adequately represent the broad spectrum of Christ-following people. And when one person tends to do that, to identify the gospel or the church with one particular movement, we start erecting barriers that keep people from coming to Christ. I don't want people thinking they have to become a Republican or a Democrat in order to become a Christ follower. That's why we're stridently nonpartisan here at Grace. That's why we don't ask you to sign petitions. That's why we don't distribute voter guides. When people are coming here to seek and worship God, we don't want them distracted or confused by having to wrestle with some political question. So no party or platform can adequately represent the vision and values of the kingdom of God. And so individually, we have to make the best decision we can, thoughtfully, prayerfully, and humbly. And that leads us to the fourth two-by-four I want to throw your way, okay? I won't hit you with it, I'll just throw it at you. Reasonable Christian minds will differ and deserve to be respected. Reasonable Christian minds will differ and need and deserve to be respected. Now, this is a principle we've talked about before, but typically we talk about it in terms of issues within the church, disputable matters in the church, like, uh, like speaking in tongues or the form of baptism or which, which baseball team to root for, questions like that, that we sometimes disagree about. The principle is that thoughtful people who love God and believe the Bible will sometimes arrive at different conclusions about matters of Christian belief and practice. And certainly they'll come to different conclusions about the best social or political solution to a problem facing our nation. And so we need to give each other the freedom to disagree and the freedom to engage with each other in gracious, respectful, constructive ways. In other words, not like our candidates are doing right now. Gracious, respectful, and constructive ways. Listen to what Paul writes to believers in the city of Corinth who were at odds with each other over a social theological issue. 
He writes, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Notice, again, Paul allows for the possibility that two sincere, thoughtful followers of Jesus Christ will arrive at different conclusions. The important thing isn't that one of them prove the other wrong. The important thing is that each of them come to their own conclusion and they respect one another's conclusions. I'll say that again. The important thing isn't that one of them prove the other wrong but that they each arrive at their own conclusion and then respect the other's freedom to do so as well. And so politically, when we see things differently from a brother or sister in Christ, we need to refrain from passing judgment on their faith, on their intelligence, or on their patriotism. And this is perhaps the most disheartening aspect of this current political environment is our inability to have civil discourse on these kinds of questions, even in the church. And I'll confess, I've had to repent of this myself at too quickly dismissing a point of view for being foolish or too quickly getting defensive when someone challenges my point of view. If any group of people ought to be able to listen to each other learn from each other. It ought to be brothers and sisters in Christ who have been saved by grace and made one in Christ. Surveys are revealing a a great divide in the evangelical church politically between white evangelicals who tend to drift rightward, generally, and black and brown evangelicals who tend to drift a little bit to the left, generally speaking. There's a growing divide between older evangelicals who tend to drift towards the right and young millennial evangelicals who are tending to drift towards the left. Now that doesn't have to be a bad thing if we can listen to each other, learn from each other, and perhaps hearing each other find a better way that includes and encompasses all of us and that actually becomes God's way. I was actually quite proud of our church this past fall. We've had two open forums on political questions. One was the Faithful Citizenship Night, and one was Q Commons. And a few hundred people came out to listen to people with other points of view, and then to sit at the table and talk with each other without raising our voices or calling each other names. It was a beautiful thing, and it's the way it ought to be done, and the church ought to be showing the way. Reasonable Christian minds will differ. So let's get practical for a minute and talk about how a reasonable Christian mind decides what to do in that booth on November 8th. How do we decide who and what to vote for? Well, typically we talk about three factors or three criteria that go into making a decision like that. It begins with the policy factor. We consider the policies that each party or platform or candidate are proposing, and we have to decide which set of policies best serves the common good or best speaks to the issues that God has put on our heart? That's not always a simple question because there are a lot of issues out there. Immigration, the economy, the sanctity of life, climate change, homeland security, foreign relations, racial justice, education, health care. It's a wide range of issues 
for any plat party or platform to get right. Some voters will decide that one issue supersedes all the others and may vote accordingly. Others will say, no, you have to consider the whole range of issues and, and vote for the one that will provide the most good on the most issues. Those are individual decisions that we all have to make. But that's just the first question, is the policy question. We secondly have to ask the character question. We want our leaders to be people that we can trust. People of honesty and, and integrity and compassion and courage. I mean, for better or for worse, people will be like their leaders. Our leaders are pace setters. They are example setters. They are speaking and acting for the nation to the world. And so it's right for us to ask the character question, who do we trust? Who do we respect? The, our first president set the character bar pretty high, George Washington. He was famous as a, a leader of character. And so we have to ask this question, whose character are we most comfortable with? And how important is character compared to policy? It's not so easy to decide. But then there's a third factor to be considered, and that's competence. Competence. A candidate may have sterling character and comprehensive policies, but can they do the job? Do they have the executive skills necessary to function at that level? Do they have the breadth of experience that enables them to lead the nation and the world? Are they, do they have the stamina? Do they have the temperament to be president? Do they look presidential? These are competence questions. So we have to weigh all three of them. Are they of equal value or does one take precedence over another? Those are not easy questions to answer. Reasonable Christians will come to different conclusions. But what if you find you can in good conscience vote for either one of them? What, what, what if you're struggling with, with both candidates? What about the option of a third-party candidate, whether it's a, a name on the ballot or a, a write-in candidate? And by the way, you can't just write in anybody on the line, okay? It's got to be, at least in Massachusetts, it has to be a registered candidate. So if you're thinking about writing in David Ortiz, forget about it. You can't <laughs> do it, all right? But this question of a third-party candidate has, has become very relevant because of the high unfavorability ratings of our two majority party candidates. And some will say voting for a third-party candidate is a wasted vote. That you have to, it's better to proactively choose the lesser of two evils than to perhaps help an, uh, the worse evil to get elected. That's one point of view. Others will say that no, a third-party vote is a legitimate way of expressing your voice and, and registering your vote. That in doing so, you're expressing your disapproval either of the candidates or of the system. You are calling for something or someone new to come on to the scene. You're even allowed to skip the presidential ballot and just move on down and vote for the rest of them as a way of making a statement. So all of these are decisions that each of us have to make when we step into that booth in a handful of days from now. The important thing is to vote your conscience. Paul says each one should be fully convinced in their own mind.
The truth is, the single vote that you or I cast on November 8th will not determine who our next president is. It's just bigger than that. We get a say. But what that vote truly is an expression of is what's happening in our heart. And our thoughtful, prayerful, deliberate engagement with each other and the issues and, and making the best decision we can, exercising our freedom before God. And the very good news, the very, very good news is that we can cast that vote with confidence knowing that the outcome is in God's hands. And that's our fifth and final biblical truth. Our citizenship is in heaven and our hope is in Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven and our hope is in Christ. Writing from prison with his fate in the hands of a pagan emperor, Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord. In the face of an uncertain future, Paul is reminding himself and his readers and us that no matter what happens here on earth, our king is on the throne in heaven and he is in charge. Now, he gives us freedom. He gives us freedom even to make a mess of things. But in his sovereignty, he's able to work with even the messes we make and work them together in ways that are good for us and that advance his kingdom in this world. In spite of or through whoever happens to be in public office. And so our hope is not in any name on the ballot. Our hope is in Christ, who even now is putting things right, one person and one place at a time, and he promises to continue doing that until all places and all people come together under his rule. That's our hope. A few weeks ago, we had a group of Chinese house church pastors visiting here with us. They're studying here for a few weeks. And, and they spent a the morning with us, and we, I was talking with them afterwards. They had all kinds of questions about how we do church here in America. And I had questions for them. I said to them, how do you deal with a government that's hostile to your faith and repressive to your ministry? And they went on to explain that the Things are very unpredictable for them. That they have great freedom in one province and great restriction in another province. They can go for many, many months without any hindrance at all and one Sunday show up and there's a padlock on the door of the church. They never know. It's very difficult. But here's what they said. and It was so simple and so profound I scribbled it down on a piece of paper. It's very hard sometimes. But unless our gospel message itself is being threatened, we try to be flexible and not to be distracted, and we pray. And what struck me is that in a political environment, far more uncomfortable and, and un, uncertain as ours is, they are not wringing their hands over what's going to happen next. They're not hunkering down in fear. They're not strategizing ways to take the government back. They are faithfully graciously and courageously doing the work of the kingdom, believing that Christ will build his church no matter who's in charge and the gates of hell can't stand against it. 
And that's exactly what's happening in China. It's exactly what's happening. Under our repressive government, the church in China is growing far faster than it is anywhere else in the Western world. So friends, I know this has been a very gloomy election season. And people already feeling anxious about what's going to happen on the other side of November 9th. But whatever happens, we who follow Christ are to be people of hope. Because we know that our God is able to work with whatever happens and perhaps even to do something new and unexpected with what happens, to build his church and advance his kingdom. And we get to join him in that work no matter who's in charge, nationally or locally. So if ever there was a time for Christ's people to come together to love our neighbors and serve the common good. Now is that time. And I hope that this faith community, Grace Chapel, I hope that we'll, we'll lead the way, that we'll show the world how it can be done. So as disturbing as this election has been, let's not lose heart. As distracting as it's been, let's not lose focus. And as divisive as it has been, let's come together to see God's will and the kingdom be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have your word to turn to for wisdom in times like this. We thank you for your spirit who helps us collectively and individually to understand your word and to apply it to our particular circumstances. We're grateful for a community of faith in which we can interact with people who see and experience the world differently so that we might come to a more comprehensive and wise and God-honoring decision on these kinds of things. We're grateful, Lord, that we can trust you with our nation, with the ministry of the church, with our individual lives. So we do pray that you would grant to each of us wisdom, grace, and hope as we make our way through and beyond Election Day. But as we conclude, we will together, Lord, pray the prayer that you taught your disciples, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.